Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this evening, this opportunity to come together, to dive into your word, and to allow you to speak to us through it. We pray, O Lord, that our hearts and minds would be open and ready to receive whatever you have in store for us, and that if there are any worries, distractions, anything weighing us down or pulling us away from this time, we pray that we would Be free of those, Lord. We lay those things at your feet and ask that your will be done during this time. Bless us each in the ways that we most need it, and bless us at our hearing of this word. Allow it to speak truth into our lives, to comfort us in the ways we are grieving or experiencing loss or difficulty. Allow it to challenge and convict us in the ways that we want to be more disciplined or grow in our faith. And above all, allow it to be an opportunity to encounter you and deepen our faith and our community with one another. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are in John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. Shorter passage for us this week. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the second Sunday in ordinary time. Usually after we celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany, the next uh, Sunday is the baptism of the Lord. Uh, For some reason, that didn't happen. That was celebrated today. Today is the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. But ironically, we have a passage about the baptism of Jesus, so it's kind of best of both worlds. So uh, this is the uh, account in the Gospel of John about uh, the baptism and testimony uh, of Jesus. Okay. Uh, After this week, we'll be back in Matthew for most of the coming weeks because that's the gospel that we are in during this liturgical year, during cycle A, is the gospel of Matthew. But we have one little instance here of John. So we're going to read these verses. Uh, Again, we'll be in John 1, verses 29 to 34. Read them twice through, maybe three times because it's shorter. But first time through, just get an image for this scene. Okay. Act as you've never heard this before. Paint this image in your mind. You have a blank canvas before you. You've never heard this, paint it as you hear it in your mind and engage your senses. What do you see? What do you smell? Uh, What do you hear? Who are you in this scene? What do you observe? John 1, 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one of whom I said, A man is coming after me who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I did not know him, but the reason why I came baptizing with water was that he might be made known to Israel. John testified further, saying, I saw the Spirit come down like a dove from the sky and remain upon him. I did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, on whomever you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now I have seen and testified that he is the Son 
of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now as we read this a second time, as always, we're going to listen and just follow along with the words as you hear them. See if there's a particular word or phrase that stands out to you for any reason. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the passage. It could strike you, set off a memory, a random array of thoughts. It just resonates with you for some particular reason. Hold on to whatever that word or phrase may be and begin to reflect on it. Why is this standing out to you? How is the Lord trying to speak to you through this particular word or detail? Second time through, John 1, 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one of whom I said, A man is coming after me, who ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. I did not know him, but the reason why I came baptizing with water was that he might be made known to Israel. John testified further, saying, I saw the Spirit come down like a dove from the sky and remain upon him. I did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, On whomever you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and since we have a smaller passage this week, I'm going to read it one final time to confirm whatever stood out. Give you a second chance if nothing resonated with you. Um, but if it did, just continue to reflect on that this final time. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one of whom I said, A man is coming after me, who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I did not know him, but the reason why I came baptizing with water was that he might be made known to Israel. John testified further, saying, I saw the Spirit come down like a dove from the sky, and remain upon him. I did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, on whomever you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take the next uh, five or ten minutes to reflect over these passages, especially any questions that arose or anything that stood out to you. Uh, I invite you to share those uh, with the people you're sitting with. We have a little bit smaller of a group this week, so I invite you to uh, combine tables if you wish to do so, so you have some people to chat with. But either way, uh, reflect on the passage and uh, share what stood out to you, any questions. If you're watching this, let us know in the comments what those things are. But for those of us here, we'll do that for about ten minutes, and then we'll come back and share in the larger group. I'd love to hear what are some of the things that are standing out to you, some questions that you may have. Yes, Lynn. Okay. Um, I noticed that in this very short passage, he says twice, I did not know him. Yeah, wild. I mean, he made a, even though he was a relative, mm -hmm. he said, I did not know him. And it also occurred to me 
that which I thought was unusual. It occurred to me also that baptism itself is kind of like the ritual washing of the Jews mm-hmm. that the Jews did, and then later the Muslims. Mm-hmm. But um, then when Jesus came, instead of the water, it was with the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. which is a, a big departure, yeah. which nobody else had thought of doing. Sure. Of having. But I just wondered if you had any comment on, I did not know him twice yeah. in such a small way. Yes, yeah. So um, this could be for a couple reasons. Okay, so remember John has written the last of all four Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels, that means similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all written around like 50 to 70 AD. Okay, somewhere 55 to 70 AD, before the destruction of Jerusalem. John is written after that, much later. Um, probably in the, the, I mean, you could argue maybe before 70, but it's the last of the four. Uh, and so at this point, what Jesus did in his ministry and the church that he started and the mission of the apostles, it's become more established. And now people are starting to ask questions about like, who really was this Jesus person and how do we understand his nature, who he is? Because he was a human being who walked this earth that people witnessed, and we have eyewitness testimony of, and yet you're claiming that he's also God, who's always existed. That's why we have this very beautiful prologue in John, very poetic prologue in John, that talks about, like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, trying to establish this almost new Genesis kind of language to establish, like, God, Jesus is God, second person of the Trinity, who has always been, but who came into a human existence, so that he might redeem us. But this was something they were just beginning to understand. Okay, And our language of the Trinity and our understanding of the Trinity wasn't fully like hashed out probably until the mid-5th century, like until we understood fully like who's the Holy Spirit in this mix? Are they all co-eternal, co-equal? They're all God, the three persons actually understanding the whole doctrine of the Trinity as we know it now. That took 400 years to develop. Okay, So I think what's happening here is, is a possibility is that John, the, the gospel writer John, not John the Baptist, John the gospel writer is writing about John the Baptist to distance himself from the humanity of Jesus, to try and say like, oh, I didn't know who this kind of person was, to give Jesus even more of a divine quality, okay? So that could be a reason why it's written this way. Um, however, scripture is also inspired, and you know, this is a historical document, so we there's no reason why John would make something up if it didn't really happen, unless it was for a really good purpose. So let's say John the Baptist did say this twice. Well, the word here that's used for I did not know him in Greek is edein. It comes from uh, the verb to know, oida in Greek. And there's many words uh, for to know in Greek, like there are in many other languages, you know, um, like um, ser and conocer in Spanish, uh, and setra and conetra in French and all the, all the other languages. There's two, usually two main verbs, to know. And one means to know information about something, and one means to know a person. Okay? And so the verb that is used here is the one that means to know a person as in to fully understand them. And in fact, in Greek, there's like nine different to knows, nine different versions of this verb, something like that. Uh, but these, these two are the ones that are, are mainly used in Greek, oida, and then the other one is ginosko. Ginosko is the one that's like information. I've learned about this. I have this information. So in one sense, we could say John the Baptist, yeah, he knew Jesus. They grew up together. They're second cousins. 
They went to festivals together. They didn't live exactly near each other, but they were well aware of each other. When family festivals, weddings, things happened, they were obviously there together and knew of each other. But the verb that's used here is like, I didn't have this full understanding, this intimate knowledge of the full nature of who this person was. That's how you can interpret it from the biblical Greek. I didn't really know this person. Yeah, I knew Jesus, my cousin, but I didn't know him as the son of God until the sign that was told me by God who sent me to come baptize happened to him. And then I realized, then I realized. In a sense, it's the same as like, you know, I knew Erica when we were growing up. Sorry to put you on the spot, honey. Um, But then there was a moment in which it was like, oh, I know she is the person that I'm supposed to marry. Like, I know that she is the one, and I know that she's going to become my wife. Like, that's, there's a difference between those types of knowledge. So you can know someone and have knowledge of them, but until it reaches that full understanding and intimacy, there's still a different type of knowledge there to be reached. And I think that's what we're seeing here in John the Baptist, is now he's realizing, because of the sign promised by God, this is actually the Messiah. So... Did he have no idea, like at all? We don't know. He may have had an inkling or may have been like, yeah, Jesus is pretty holy or very special. But it seems to be, based on his testimony here, that at the moment he was baptizing, when Jesus came to him, he recognized in the sign who Jesus really was. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Great. Yes? So the other question that came up with is, at what age did um, John the Baptist start um, baptizing people? Hmm. Yeah, so probably around 30. Uh, So it's a very typical at this. So John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. We know that from the account in in Luke, okay? Uh, And it was very typical at this time when you were young, you would study until you were about 12 years old, 12 or 13 years old. And then you would either uh, go interview with a rabbi to become that rabbi's disciple if you were a really, really good student, or you would go assume your family trade. Okay, And then once you reached around the age of 30, if you had gone and studied with a rabbi or you wanted to enter into public ministry, that was the time at which it was typical for someone to become a rabbi and take on their own disciples. So because John the Baptist is stepping into a public ministry and he is taking on disciples himself, remember we know Andrew is one of his disciples, Philip is one of his disciples, Um, they go and tell other people, Nathaniel and Peter, about him, about Jesus when they encounter him. Um, that would indicate that this was around 30. So it wasn't for very long this was happening, probably about six months until Jesus came of the rabbinical age and decided to initiate his own public ministry at that proper time as well. So weren't those those Jesus' disciple apostles later? Yes, yeah. John. They were following John first, first, yeah. We have that actually in this account later on where uh, they come to John the Baptist and he says, behold the Lamb of God. It's what happens right after this. And they go and follow him. And he says, what are you looking for? You know, and, and they have this interaction. And then he goes and invites them to stay with him. And then they go and tell Peter and Nathaniel. And then they, you know, they tell two friends and they tell two friends. And then all of a sudden, Jesus has this posse around him. You know, but yeah, they started out as disciples of John the Baptist. Yeah. Yes. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, is there any reference prior to this moment that we know that uh, John the Baptist had this, uh, and what I, I want to call it an epiphany, because wow, mm-hmm. he received this uh, 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 
the word of God is being said. That yeah. Way, is there any reference or a, we take it as a, we don't know what yeah. happened? Mm -hmm. um, because there were, if I if I don't remember, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there was a group of people called the Essenes. I don't. The Essenes, yes. Yes. The Essenes who were actually performing a sort of ritual of baptizing people mm -hmm. with water. Yes. Was, uh, am I correct in assuming then, then uh, John was at least uh, one of that one of that uh, particular group of believers? Uh, yeah. Uh, he was. Yeah, many the people Essenes. believe John the Baptist was one of the Essenes. Yeah. One of the Essenes. Yeah. Okay. But there is no, no reference, there is no mention that at a certain point prior to this event, John the Baptist received a kind of a message from God to actually do it this way. No, we don't have the direct witness or that conversation. However, we do have a lot of evidence for the fact that John the Baptist knew, even from the moment of his birth, or would have been told to him from the moment of his birth, what his mission was. Because we see, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, when they're approaching Zechariah uh, and asking, you know, wondering what the, who will this child be because of this, uh, this situation that happens where Zechariah struck mute when he finds out that Elizabeth is going to be with child. And then when he writes when they're born, oh, we want to name him Zechariah after you. And he writes, no, his name will be John. And his mouth is opened and everyone is amazed. And they say, I think it says in Luke, um, what then will this child be? Um, yeah, in, in Luke 1.66. And then in his canticle, he talks about um, all of these different ways in which salvation will be brought. And it's clear that their, their understanding of the role of John the Baptist, and I believe even earlier when uh, the angel Gabriel comes to meet Zechariah, even announces that this child will prepare the way for the Lord. And the beginning of John, that's how John introduces himself. He says, like, I'm, the Pharisees come and question him, are you the one who is to come? And he says, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm the voice crying out in the wilderness. And he quotes the prophecies from Isaiah and from the Old Testament. So he knows clearly who he is, what his role is, and what he's there to do. So we know he, he, that's either been told to him by his family from a very young age and or he had some, when he came of age, had some encounter with God to tell him specifically what to do. But because he was already of the Essene community, living this very uh, ascetic lifestyle with fasting and living almost like a hermit, doing these ritual washings, it didn't make that, it was not that big of a leap to go into this type of ministry in a very desolate area like the Dead Sea, out where hermits would be, away from society, baptizing people in this ritual cleansing and, you know, wearing the, uh, the outfit of the prophet Elijah, you know, camel's hair, eating the same food, foraging out in the wilderness. So he was very much standing in the knowledge of who he was, the tradition he stood in as the new Elijah announcing the way of the Messiah. He knew that full well. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, Margo. <laughs> And I've seen him testify that he's the son of God. But in the beginning, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Yes. In Jewish eyes, mm -hmm. it would be kind of sacrificial lamb. So yes. What would they, it seems opposite. Yeah. I mean, how, how, what, they, what would they have been thinking? Yeah. Like so if you're a Jew and you hear the phrase, Behold the Lamb of God, you immediately think Passover. That's the first thing that you're going to think of. Because the Lamb of God is the, uh, and, and if you add that phrase, who takes away the sins of the world, you're going to be thinking of a sacrificial offering in the temple, which Passover involved. You know, you would bring your lamb to the temple, it would be sacrificed, you would roast it with bitter herbs, you would eat it, 
as you were as you were as if you were in flight you would have like your yourself packed and ready to go you would kind of set the family up like that you wouldn't actually go but it was to commemorate that first time that actually happened in Exodus chapter 12 when they fled Egypt and the instructions they were given about the Passover um, further back than that in um actually this was after but the um I don't think I have it earmarked um do I no, um, there's instruction about the, the scapegoat in, uh, I've talked about this before in Leviticus about, oh, I do have it earmarked. I thought I did. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 16, that on the day of atonement, which was the only day of fasting in the Jewish calendar, that uh, there was to be made a reparation offering. A reparation offering means an offering for the forgiveness of sins or for the absolution of sins. And it was kind of an offering. We hope, Lord, that you will see this as worthy and you would sacrifice this animal uh, and use its blood to purify the temple. And you would take another animal and you would lay, the high priest would lay his hands and announce all of the sins of the people over the head of that goat and it would be led off out into the wilderness, okay? So that was that imagery of uh, sacrificial lambs, sacrificial animals taking away the sins of the world was very much part of Passover, very much part of the Day of Atonement when sins were forgiven once a year. And all of that would be invoked when you would hear this phrase, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You might also hear uh, Isaiah 53. This is one of the, the final of the songs of the suffering servant in the prophet Isaiah. There are four of them. There's different prophecies about this character called the suffering servant. And a lot of people thought that the suffering servant was just Israel. It was the nation of Israel, and they were going to go through the suffering like they had before in service to the Lord, and we would be redeemed one day. However, these are also messianic prophecies about Jesus. And so here's a passage uh, from Isaiah 53, starting in verse 7. Though harshly treated, he submitted and did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, or a sheep silent before shearers, he did not open his mouth. Seized and condemned, he was taken away. Who would have thought any more of his destiny? For he was cut off from the land of the living, struck for the sins of his people. He was given a grave among the wicked, a burial place with evildoers, though he had done no wrong, nor was deceit found in his mouth. But it was the Lord's will to crush him with pain by making his life as a reparation offering. And it continues. Okay, so you would have thought that. There are many prophecies in the Old Testament about the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, or one who is led like a lamb to slaughter. All of that culminates in the person of Jesus. He is the suffering servant, the one who has come, who is found innocent, who does not open his mouth, remember, before Pilate. He does not try and defend himself. He willingly takes on that punishment so that he will die for our sins. He is the new Passover lamb, the one who, Passover lamb in Exodus 12, that is offered so that the angel of death will pass over the homes of the Jewish people because the blood is spread on their doorposts. His blood is spread on the post of the cross so that our sins would be forgiven, and the angel of death would pass over us so that we might have eternal life. And just as in the Day of Atonement, his blood is what forgives our sins and what we claim every time we offer that same offering once and for all at every Mass and we receive him in the Eucharist so that we would be forgiven of our sins. And in the same way, they placed the sins on that, on that goat and led it out into the desert. Jesus was led out into the desert to be tempted, to face sin face-to-face, -face, evil face-to-face. -face. So all of this, all of these Old Testament images and experiences are foreshadowings of the one who is to come. Like God was playing the long, 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 long game here. Like he had all of his ducks in a row. He knew exactly 
what he was going to do so that when this type of language is used, it would be unequivocally obvious what was meant by it, okay? So when Lamb of God is used, you would invoke all of that Old Testament imagery about the Messiah, the one who is to come. Now, that didn't itself say that this person was also going to be the Son of God. So this difference in, that Margot's pointing out here in these two titles, okay? That would have come later in our understanding of Jesus and his ministry. And John, who was part of that ministry, can now add that and say that I knew, or John the Baptist knew, that this person was also the Son of God. Remember, trying to communicate Jesus was not just a human, but he was also divine. And that is one of his titles that's used in Scripture, the Son of God. And again, not a Son of God. Son of God was a title that was used of rulers and emperors like Caesar. Caesar was called the Son of God. But when you say, I am the Son of God, that means something different. It means that all of these other earthly rulers, their title, their claim to that, that title is, is null. There is only one. One true king, one true ruler, and this is him. So this would have invoked a whole lot of that suffering servant imagery of someone being led to slaughter like a lamb, but then out of that rising and becoming this great king. Kind of culminates all of these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, about being a king like King David, but also being this lamb led to slaughter being this great prophet who is persecuted, but also God himself incarnate. All of this coming together in just a few phrases. You know, it would have been very shocking to hear that, especially to describe a person and not an actual lamb. Yes? I don't know how to use what I just thought. Uh, at what point in Judaism did they call out of sacrifices? when the temple was destroyed in the year 70. So, um, and you could argue probably during Babylonian exile when the first temple was destroyed. They may have still tried to offer sacrifices to altars that they erected when they were away from Jerusalem. But once that second temple was destroyed, again, that stuff may have persisted. They may have tried to erect these other altars. But historically, that is the main point in which like that kind of just ends. You know, some groups still try and offer those around the world at different times or in different places. Um, on different altars, but real true sacrifice was meant to be done in the temple, and that could no longer happen once it was destroyed, once and for all. Yeah. Yeah. That was still going, the sacrifice was still going on during Jesus' time because Jesus went into the temple. Yes. And it was like a mall, and there were people selling stuff, doves, and all that. I assume those animals were for sacrifice. Yeah, the temple was destroyed after Jesus. Right. Yeah, in the year 70. But yeah. said maybe during the first temple. So there would have been, what I mean is there may have been a pause during the first temple's destruction, but it did come back once they returned and rebuilt the temple. Yeah, sorry for not clarifying. Yeah, but it didn't fully end. The Romans. Yeah, there was a, uh, a dispute and a riot um, involving the Zealots and I believe the Pharisees. And the Zealots were uprising to try and overthrow Rome that created this big... Uh, difficulty, and because there was this all this infighting between the Pharisees and the rest of the Jews, they had become distracted, and they didn't realize that this was bubbling up, and Rome just came in and decimated everything to the point where it was never even attempted to be rebuilt, and you still have the ruins of uh, the temple in Jerusalem to this day. So, yeah. So is that? We always, you know, when I talk to people Jews, I know. I mean, talk. They tried to equate a, a rabbi with a priest. I saw rabbi is more on the level of a deacon in the church. So I tried to ask them, well, what happened to the Jewish priests? 
Yeah, uh, well, they, I think some uh, continue to trace their lineage in the hopes that one day the temple will be rebuilt. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were still Aaronic lines, like people in the line of Aaron or uh, Levite lines that are being tracked in the like Hasidic or Orthodox Jewish communities. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, in fact, I think there is. I think there are communities who know that they're the, of the tribe of Levi um, or of the, the family of Aaron. But um, yeah, rabbis became more popular because they were in charge of synagogues, which were the teaching houses, the teaching areas. You know, there was no sacrifice made there. You just came for teaching and for prayer. Um, the temple was where all that happened. So in a sense, you're right. Like a rabbi would be the equivalent of a deacon because a deacon can proclaim the word, can offer teaching, but there's no kind of sacramental experience in a synagogue, nothing tangible like a sacrifice or, you know, what we might consider a sacrificial offering, which is what the mass is. You know, we're, we're remembering that one sacrifice of Jesus for us on the cross. Um, so yeah, that would probably be the equivalent, but the priest's they may still be around and being traced, but they have virtually no use because their whole role had to do with the temple and offering sacrifice in the temple. They had no other responsibilities outside of the temple. So you never, you never heard of any, like after the, the Romans destroyed the temple and all that, and a lot of the Jews were scattered. You never, you've never heard anything about you know, a Jewish priest in, you know, in Europe, Eastern Europe or anything like that. No, I, not, not, I mean, very well could be, but I, um, I, I'm not aware of. Yeah. I'm, but I, again, I would not be at all surprised if there were, and they were, they continue even to this day to trace their lineage. Cause that's a very, it's a sacred practice in Judaism to trace genealogy. It's considered like a spiritual practice. Uh, because you are remembering all that God has done and been faithful to generation after generation when you do that. That's why we have so many genealogies in the Bible. Uh, they thought, saw it as a very sacred practice. So I'm sure some of them are still doing it. Yeah. Other questions or things that just stood out? Post good reflection, words or phrases? Something yeah. Is there a reason why not much is written about Jesus between ages 12 and 30? I mean, that he lived at home, he was faithful to his parents, he did what he was told, but not much else? Yeah. Sure I mean, maybe he's just really boring for 18 years. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, so um, that's a great question. The Gospels are a genre of literature called a, a, a bio, like a bio, um, or bioe, which is the plural in Greek. Um, and the way that was written at the time, and you see this all throughout history, when, when anyone, especially at this time and in ancient times, is writing about a famous individual, they write about only the significant portion of their life that mattered in history. So like the reign of their kingship or the reign of that emperor. And they write anything that can be found about their birth and anything that can be found about their death. And that's pretty much it. And we see the exact same thing with Jesus. We have very little about everything in between. That's very unusual to us because we're used to reading full-fledged biographies and stories about individuals and well-developed plots and all of this. This was a very usual way of writing about a person at the time, historically. There'd be no reason to put in all of that other information in their estimation because it took time, paper was very expensive, you only wanted to get the highlights to be able to pinpoint them in time, and there were a lot of unusual and often miraculous claims about famous or uh, uh, very wealthy rulers' births and deaths. And so they would usually legendize some of them or try and get all the information about that to be able to show, oh, this is why this person was such a great king, because they had this really wild birth, or they came to this really interesting death. But it's really just recording their reign 
or the significant events of their life that mattered in history or for the empire, and then everything else wasn't worth mentioning just because of the cost. I, I heard that you know, before um, <clears throat> he was 30, that he went to other parts of the world. Is that, is that you truth to that? Uh, we have no reason to believe that uh, because uh, Jesus shows that he was a faithful Jew. And as a faithful Jew, he would have made three annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem. So he would have very likely stayed in the area. Otherwise, he would not have been able to do that. Um, and we don't have any tangible evidence that he actually did that. You know, There are uh, much later religious denominations that claim that he did that. Uh, but none of them can produce any actual tangible textual evidence that that occurred. Yeah. Other details of this stand out? Other questions? All good stuff. Well, I, if, if others come up, please let me know. But I want to point out one of my favorite things in this that nobody mentioned, which makes me sad. But it's a very nuanced detail, okay? And this is, I'm going to nerd out a little bit, okay? And it's the very beginning. How does this begin? The next day. The next day. Remember how I mentioned John 1, 1 is like a new Genesis? When do we have the next day, the next day? Genesis chapter 1. Okay, so John is doing something very crafty here in the way he's writing his gospel. He's crafting a new Genesis. Okay, so I want you to track with me. I've pointed this out before maybe in a Bible study, but it's been a while. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning. In the beginning. Okay, now right here in John 1, 29, it says, the next day, day two. John 1.35, the next day, day three. John 1.40, what is that? 43, the next day, day four. And then John chapter two, verse one, on the third day, five, six, seven, on the seventh day. The seventh day that God rests and allows Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to be fruitful and multiply. It's the same day in the New Testament of a wedding, a symbol of a union between a man and woman where they are to be fruitful and multiply where Jesus begins his public ministry. So John is doing something very smart, very literarily crafty here, and he is painting the picture of a new creation, a new Genesis happening. And there's other symbols of this, because where this is happening the next day is day two. And if we look back in Genesis chapter one, what happens on day two, this is in verse six, then God said, let there be a dome in the middle of the waters to separate one body of water from the other. God made the dome, and it separated the water below the dome from the water above the dome. And so it happened. God called the dome sky. Evening came. The morning followed the second day. It's interesting that John places this literarily on the second day of his new creation, when in the first day of uh, first second day of creation, there's a separation of waters. And in this instance, we have the separation of earthly water and the waters of baptism. You know, there's this thing in, in uh, all throughout Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, when it comes to purity and cleanliness. And if you were to touch something unclean, you automatically became unclean. But the difference is, if God or something holy touches you, you are then purified. And that's what's happening here in the baptism of Jesus. Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. He's not unclean. He's not impurified. I think it's St. Ambrose who says something to the effect of, Jesus did not enter the waters of baptism to be cleansed. He entered the waters of baptism to cleanse the waters so that we could be cleansed. And so there's this kind of separation and distinction. There's a new order of creation. 
and that we get to be part of that by taking part in the life of Jesus by being baptized, by entering into the family of God through baptism. The Catholic Church teaches that in order to be saved, one must be baptized. However, there are different means by which the church understands baptism. A traditional way is baptism by water. There's also baptism by blood, those who are killed for their faith but do not have yet have the opportunity to be baptized, and those who are considered baptized by desire, that had they known the fullness of truth, they would have desired baptism because they responded as best they could to the level of truth that had been revealed to them. But the fullness of truth had not been revealed to them, and they had not yet had the opportunity to be baptized. Think of the good thief on the cross. You know, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus doesn't say, okay, go fill out these forms at your parish. You'll get baptized next week. You know, no, he doesn't bother with that. He's already there. He's always demonst already demonstrated. He's responding in faith to at least the knowledge that he has, okay? Uh, it says in the catechism that God bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, but God himself is not bound by the sacraments meaning that God can save people however he wants to save them. But the ordinary means for salvation is that we would be baptized. That's why at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus commands the 12 apostles to go out and make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is how seriously the church takes uh, our salvation. I'm going to talk about baptism at Catholicism 101 this Sunday, uh, so a little preview. But uh, this is why the church teaches that anyone in any situation, can baptize anybody else. Do you know that? Can validly baptize in the Catholic Church anybody if it's an emergency situation because God and the church take salvation that seriously. So if you roll up on an accident and someone is dying on the side of the road and you don't know what to do, we as Catholics can go up to them and say, hey, have you been baptized? And as long as we use water and we intend what the church intends when she baptizes, and we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, using water three times over their head or over their body in some way. They are legit baptized. And if they survive that, and that baptism record goes in the church, it's going to say, baptize on the side of the I-5 freeway on this day by this person. You know, it's not going, they're not going to have it redone. That's a legitimate baptism because that's how seriously God wants everyone to be part of his family. How seriously he wants everyone to be part of this new creation in which he's come and made these waters new so that we could be cleansed in them and be made new. Such a cool and beautiful gift that we have. So it's a challenge for you and I to just be on the lookout. You never know when the day comes when you're going to have to baptize somebody. Uh, in fact, my father-in-law was baptized by his father, even though it wasn't an emergency situation. Uh, I think Papa just got tired of waiting, um, and just baptize them, right? Uh, yeah, in, in their house. But that is a legitimate thing that you can do, okay? But it's meant to be done in emergency situations. And in fact, a person need not even be Catholic. So let's say like, I have a friend, uh, let's say I wasn't Catholic, and I have a friend who uh, I know that they're, you know, thinking about uh, becoming Christian, and they've mentioned something about being Catholic. And they're, uh, they get in an accident, and I say, hey, look, I, there's nothing I can do for you, but do you, do you want to be baptized? Uh, because I know you want to be Catholic, but you may not have the chance. I, if I were a non-Catholic, I could still baptize them, and it would still be valid if I used the proper formula, if I used the baptismal formula. Like, that's literally anybody can baptize literally anybody in an emergency, because that's how much God wanted salvation for us. I just think that's so cool. No, it's, it's if you intend what the church intends, the church teaches that the water is made holy by the holiness of the act. Yeah, so you don't have to even be like, I bless you, water, you know, like we technically can't, aren't allowed to do that, you know. Uh, so, 
but the water becomes holy and blessed. If you happen to have holy water, that's why it's a great practice. Uh, you're welcome to carry little bottles of holy water, uh, and you can just fill them up in the baptismal font when the church is open. You don't need to ask. It's a regular practice for Catholics to do. You just need to make sure that the bottle is designated and set apart, saying that it's holy water so that it's not used for some other uh, accidental, normal purpose. Uh, it's not meant to be used like normal water, okay? Even though in the Eastern Church, they do drink holy water. Uh, we don't do that in the Western Catholic Church, so. Anyway, yes? Yeah, um, so when John Baptist realized this is the whole of the plan of God, and then you just spoke of the apostles being sent out by Jesus baptized. Mm -hmm. In between that time, in between the time that John died, which I don't know how much time we got here after he baptized Jesus, did he continue to baptize? Like I mean, did, did Jesus he, after like that was Jesus? He's like, all right. I, Yes, there is. It doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, there is. A, I'm going to see if I can find it, but there is a nuanced reference to the apostles and Jesus practicing a ministry of baptize, baptism. Oh, I think John four. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees has heard that Jesus was, or when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing just his disciples, he left Judea and returned. To Galilee. That's in John 4, right at the beginning. It's like a little narration note. So there is an indicator that Jesus was telling his uh, apostles to continue the ministry of baptism. But there is a distinction between the, the baptism of Jesus, sacramental baptism, and the baptism of John the Baptist. Okay, so baptism of John the Baptist, not sacramental, because the waters had not yet been cleansed by Jesus. But once they are made new, that's where we get the sacrament from, and everything after that is, uh, that is done in the proper formula is a valid sacramental baptism. And we see evidence of this in, I think it's in Acts chapter 19. Paul, he's traveling, and I think he's in Ephesus. And he encounters disciples of John the Baptist. And essentially, I'm paraphrasing very heavily here, but he's like, what are you guys doing? Like, John the Baptist is dead. He told you Jesus was the Messiah. Like, get it together. Like, get with the program. And so he asks, like, have you been baptized? And they said, we've been baptized with the, with the baptism of John, but we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, then you have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit, like with the baptism of Jesus, and he baptizes them, even though they had already experienced the cleansing baptism of John. So there is evidence for this distinction that Jesus instituted something sacramental, something special and consecrated that was separate from what John the Baptist was doing. Yes? I'm just curious, in this passage, it looks like John the Baptist drew really large crowds. Yes. But then reading a little bit further, it almost seemed like Jesus started to like trickle in his disciples. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering, in that moment, would everyone who was kind of following John turn to Jesus and believe in him? Or how, how, yeah. how come there was such like a big crowd versus Jesus' small following at first? Yeah, so, um, well, first of all, I think... If you heard, hey, did you know out in that like really weird deserted area there's a dude dressed in camel hair yelling at people to repent and washing them in the River Jordan? You would be like, dude, let's go see. Like, let's just go watch, you know? So it drew this crowd. There had also not been a real big prophet at, in the, like for the whole Israel community in like 300 years. They had been with, I mean, there were people speaking prophetically, but there hadn't been like a real prophet since Malachi. 
And so when people start hearing, like John the Baptist, a prophet is coming, speaking prophetically, he's speaking with this kind of new authority, it, it builds up this excitement and anticipation that the Jewish people were having, like, did God forget us? Like, we had these strings of prophets and these strings of being, you know, in communication with God, and there seems like there's been this silence. And now, all of a sudden, John the Baptist, this guy, comes on the scene. So he gets these huge crowds, but we don't know how many of them are actually staying and becoming his disciples. He gets these huge crowds to go through this cleansing ritual, maybe just to save face and be like, okay, just in case, uh, you know, we hear that Pharisees and Sadducees are even there. Some of them may have just been doing it just so, you know, people didn't get mad at them. They're like, all right, we just want to, you know, please everybody. Uh, and then people could go back to their ordinary lives. But they're, he's drawing a crowd uh, for that reason. Jesus instead, and then once Jesus comes on the scene, John is immediately pointing like, I have nothing to give you. Like, go follow him. Like, he's his whole role in fact, he's the one that says, uh, he must increase, I must decrease. You know, it's all about Jesus. So we deflect all of those to Jesus. Jesus did have a large community of disciples, um, you know, people gathering around him in the thousands during his ministry, huge crowds. But those who were committed to following him by the end of his ministry was about 120. We read in Acts chapter 1, 12 of those he had called out and designated as apostles. But it wasn't just only that small group. It had grown you know, to a pretty large size. But yeah, great question. Yeah. Any other thoughts, questions, things stand out to you? Things you just want to share? Yeah. So so then if John was a prophet, yes. was then he like the last Jewish prophet? Technically, yeah. Yeah, sometimes he's called that. They haven't had one now in 2,000 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the Jews would not close the book on Jesus like we did because they didn't think he was the Messiah. So they'd probably maybe argue there have been more since. I don't know who any of those would be. Um, but I think in terms of like public revelation, in terms of Christianity, um, John the Baptist, I think, was the last major public prophet. You know, I think he's called something like that. There, there, we have the ability, every Christian has the ability with the Holy Spirit to speak prophetically. We can speak words of prophecy to one another, to the church. That's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. But to be like a, a public prophet proclaiming teachings of the Lord um, that influence what the church teaches, that influence like doctrine and public revelation, that ended, um, well, you could say that ended with the death of the last apostle. But they were called apostles, not prophets, even though they had gifts of prophecy and spoke prophetically. John the Baptist, I think, is the, he has kind of that honorary role, I've heard, of being like the last major prophet. Yeah. Yes. Skip. You guys don't know what you're talking about. Okay, but then I'm like, okay, let's listen. Let's see what you're trying to say. So apparently, the Jewish people are finding Jesus. So they're like, oh, I, I, I thought he was um, Italian, you know, whatever. Um, and then it says, uh, so he is like, you know, he's something about like. So, so there's like Jew, like Messianic Jews right now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I once saw I, this was maybe 12 years ago. I saw a van on the freeway that said Jews for Jesus, and I was so confused. I was like, "What does that mean?" Like, those are two different faiths in one phrase, you know? Like, so, uh, but that those are people who are Messianic Jews, Jewish people who claim that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, but want to retain a lot of that Jewish culture and tradition. 
and think that what it means that he was the Messiah is different than what it means for us as Christians. They think he, you know, came to liberate and to redeem, um, you know, Israel and are still waiting on some of those promises. So I think there's some Messianic Jews who think when the second coming happens, Jesus is going to reinstitute the 12 tribes of Israel and reinstitute the Jewish community in Jerusalem. I think there are some who believe that, whereas Christians believe that when he comes back, he's, you know, instituting the end times. So there's a lot of different ways in which people have come to understand Jesus in the Jewish community, and there's probably other nuanced ones as well. But yeah, there are Messianic Jews, Jews for Jesus out there, which is great. More people who know Jesus, the better, you know? So that's great. I just remember being very confused. <laughs> so I had to do some research after that because I'd never heard of that before. Any final questions, thoughts? No? Greg, you get the last word. Say that uh, at the time that Jesus had to ascend and John had to descend, so mm -hmm. is there much writing about? Like, I don't know if they had the question before. Much more writing about John doing anything, any works, or anything after that? No, he continues to minister, and then he goes and publicly. Well, he was doing this at the time of Jesus as well. Publicly, um, what's the word? Defaming uh, Herod for the, you know, King Herod, I think Agrippa at that time, who had killed his wife, married his brother's sister, and this was a Jewish king, so it violated a lot of different Jewish laws. It was publicly uh, preaching against him in his own region. And so he irritated King Herod to the point where he was imprisoned, and then King Herod beheaded him. So, and that happened very early on into Jesus's ministry. So, yeah. Yeah, no. And there's no evidence that he worked any kind of signs, wonders, or miracles, healings, anything like that. His role was to come institute the way. In fact, I think even if he had been given that ability, he probably wouldn't have used it because he, his real, you see it all over the New Testament, the first chapters of each of the Gospels, he doesn't want the attention. He's wanting to make the way, to prepare a way for the Lord, and to point the attention to Jesus. So you wonder if he, like, after he left Jesus at, at the baptism... If he was still wandering around saying, I'm preparing the way of the Lord, go here, this is where he's at. Yeah, like yeah I think that, that's very likely what happened, is that he was still preaching a, a ministry of repentance and a baptism uh, of cleansing for the forgiveness of sins, all pointing to people becoming followers of Jesus. Yeah, But also sticking it to the man and then getting in trouble and getting beheaded. So. What a man, too. Yeah, hey, not a bad way to go. <laughs> I mean, besides that, that, that woman asked for it, but why did she ask for it? So the, the wife, um, Herodias yeah. of Herod, who was technically also his sister-in-law, um, uh, Herod got drunk at a party, and uh, his daughter, daughter-in-law, no, his wife's daughter, I don't think it was his biological daughter, Salome, did this very uh, seductive dance called the Dance of the Seven Veils at this party. Um, and there's, I think, a, a, a musical or an opera called Salome where they do very interesting renditions of this on stage. But um, Herod was so uh, provoked by this dance that he promised her uh, anything that she asked for. So she goes and asks her mother, what should I ask for? And because she had also been publicly defamed by John the Baptist, she asks for his head on a silver plate. Herod was very interested in people like John the Baptist and Jesus. He, he actively has records in scripture of him wanting to know more about them. He's very curious and interested in what they're doing. And he's very wary of losing his public power. And so he doesn't want to shake the, like, uh, she doesn't want to shake anything up or ruffle any feathers. 
so he doesn't want to diminish their ministry. But once uh, once this happens publicly, it is requested at this party where he just said, I will give you anything that you ask for. He, in order to save face, follows through, and that's how John the Baptist dies. All because a drunk guy wouldn't swallow his pride. So he, he, he became, uh, the wife. Herod, King Herod and his wife, because they had an inappropriate, illicit, non-legal, non-Jewish marriage, even though they were Jewish. Yeah. So, yeah, what a note to end on, beheading and non-valid uh, Jewish marriages. But um, what I think we can get from this as we reflect on this leading up into this Sunday, uh, A, reflect on your own baptism. Reflect on your own baptism and what that means for you. Like the fact that you were saved from utter sin, desolation, destruction, death by Jesus, and nothing could have, you couldn't have earned that, you couldn't have done that on your own. Like that was a free gift offered to you. So reflect on your baptism. And then also reflect on the ways in which you are being invited to be a new creation. So that's really what baptism is. And that's the language that John is using all throughout these first chapters of John, making it almost a second Genesis. Being in a new Garden of Eden, per se, being a member of the church. Like, does it feel like paradise? Do you live a faith that is joyful, like one that is walking the, the paths of the Garden of Eden? Is that something that, you know... Uh, aligns with how you experience your faith? And does that, you know, inspire anything in you? Does that uh, give you any reason for further reflection or thanksgiving to God for all he's done for you? So those would be my encouragements to you uh, to reflect on your baptism and to think about what it means to be invited into this new creation, because Jesus is who he says he is, and he can save us from everything, and he has. And if you've been baptized, it's, it's a beautiful gift that we often take for granted, and so let's not forget it. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this community and the gift of your word. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to dive deeply into your words, to learn as much as we can about you and all that you've revealed to us, so that we will be in deeper relationship with you. It's one thing to know a lot of information about you, as John the Baptist knew you. But we don't want to end up at the end of our life saying, I did not really know you. So help us to know you in deep relationship and intimacy, to understand you and to invite you into our lives, to trust you more deeply and to have faith that you are good and that you are for us, working always for our good. We pray a blessing upon each one of us in the ways we most need it, and we ask all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.